Well, again, it is good to see you all. It feels like it has been quite a while, and that is because it has been quite a while. Uh, as we missed uh, the past two Sundays, gone at the getaway two Sundays ago, and then after the getaway, uh, my mom's side of the family uh, rented a, a house down in Orlando where we all stayed for the majority of a week. There were 29 of us in the house, uh, and we had a great time. Uh, those are some of my uh, favorite times uh, when, my, when my mom's side of the family uh, just gets a house and we all hang out for a few days. Growing up, uh, most of us on my mom's side of the family, we were very, very close uh, to my mom's side of the family. Most of us lived uh, within 10 minutes of each other um, up in Grand Rapids, Michigan. But now we span across Michigan, Indiana, Pennsylvania, South Carolina, and now Ohio. Probably very similar uh, to what many of your families look like, where maybe you kind of had a central hub of where your family went, and then as uh, kids got older, uh, they started having families of their own. Maybe they venture out. And, and your family uh, spreads uh, maybe across a couple of states, across the country, maybe even overseas, I don't know. Uh, but that was similar uh, to our side, uh, my mom's side of the family. So after my mom's side of the family left the Orlando house, uh, my parents' family, uh, which included my siblings and I and our families, we went to Disney World uh, for four days. Um, I enjoyed it more than I thought I was going to. Sometimes you have those trips where you are just glad to be home by the end of it because you are so worn out and depleted. And sometimes you have those trips where you feel like you got just a little more juice in you. And that, uh, this was one of those trips where I just felt like I had a little more juice in me, uh, could spend a little more time uh, with family. Um, but while we were at Disney World, we went to Hollywood Studios. It's one of uh, Disney's uh, four parks there. Um, and inside of Hollywood Studios, they have uh, something called Star Wars Land. Who, who's been to the Star Wars Land in Disney before? Raise your hand. Uh, a handful of us have. Um, so I thoroughly enjoy Star Wars. I wouldn't say I'm an avid fan of Star Wars. Do we have any avid fans of Star Wars out there? A handful of you guys out there. Yeah, uh, awesome. Uh, so I'm not an avid fan. I enjoy Star Wars, but I absolutely love uh, the Star Wars land in Disney as you feel totally immersed inside of this Star Wars universe. Every single, every little detail, everything that you could think of, they, they put, uh, they, they implement into this park, into this land to make you feel like you are immersed into this Star Wars universe. It's, it's absolutely incredible the amount of detail and precision they put into uh, this land to make you feel totally immersed in this Star Wars land. I'm not sure uh, if all of you, uh, or I'm sure most, if not all of you, have seen uh, the first Star Wars uh, movie. Uh, do you guys remember the Jawas uh, from that first episode of Star Wars? Little sand people with hoods uh, who scavenged uh, droid parts. Well, in this Star Wars land, uh, Disney even had uh, little colorful Jawas roaming around Star Wars land. They, they were volunteers. But if you have that picture of the uh, colorful Jawas uh, walking around, um, if you can't tell, that's uh, Jamie and Ezra over there, but I was just instantly reminded of the little Jawas with Ezra and his poncho uh, there. 
Uh, but so unfortunately, this morning we don't have uh, quite a, a, a hands-on, immersive experience uh, like I had at the Star Wars Land at Disney. Uh, but this morning, I'm going to try my best to immerse you all through storytelling. I don't have any uh, cool visuals, cool hands-on uh, stuff for you to do. But but through storytelling, I'm going to try to immerse you as best as I can into the political landscape that the Apostle Paul found himself while he wrote the letter of Romans. And we're going to do that as Paul talks a lot about politics. He talks a lot about the government and the chunk of scripture that we are going to be reading this morning. We're doing this as we are continuing our series on the book of Romans. I plan to finish up this series in five weeks, including today. So after today, we'll have four more weeks finishing up the series of Romans uh, that uh, we started uh, quite a while ago, um, se- several months. But today we are uh, going to cover all of chapter 13. It's a rather uh, short chapter. There are only 14 verses in chapter 13. So Paul, uh, to to kind of remind us all uh, of this letter of Romans, Paul, he wanted to share the gospel message with the church at Rome. Um, And and eventually he would go visit the city of Rome in person uh, as he was in prison in the city of Rome. And he was actually able to share the gospel message in person. But in the meantime, Paul would write a letter presenting the gospel message to the church at Rome. And that's what we are reading all throughout the the letter of Romans. This is Paul's presentation of the gospel message to the church at Rome. And I kind of break up this this letter uh, of Romans into three different sections. In the first couple of chapters, Paul talks all about sin and our need for a savior. And then part two, Paul, Paul talks about God's plan of salvation, that we do have a savior, and that is Christ Jesus. And then the third part of this letter is how to live a Christian life. And so four weeks ago, as we started chapter 12, we started the last section of this letter, how to live a Christian life, a life full of faith. As Paul spent the first 11 chapters of this letter talking about why we ought to live a Christian life, a life of faith, because we are in need of salvation. And so now that that we understand why we need to live a Christian life, now comes the question of how. How do we do that? How do we live a Christian life day to day? How do we live a Christian life on Monday and on Tuesday, etc.? And how do we live a life of faith? And so we started this journey of taking a look at how we live a Christian life four weeks ago as we started chapter 12. And so Paul continues, continues to tackle that question of how we live a life as a Christian in chapter 13. Now, when Paul wrote this letter to the church at Rome, he wrote this while he was on uh, his third missionary journey. Many of your Bibles, if you have a paper Bible uh, with you, if you're old school uh, like me, uh, can't replace a paper Bible uh, in my eyes. If, if you have your paper Bibles with you this morning, uh, many of your Bibles will have a different maps in, in the back of your Bible, whether it's talking about um, how uh, the 12 tribes of Israel split up, uh, the time of Abraham, the time of Jesus. Many of your Bibles will also have a map of the different missionary journeys that that Paul took. He he took three uh, different missionary journeys uh, that we know of. And so on this, uh, throughout his different missionary uh, journeys, Paul traveled all throughout the Palestinian area. That's like a modern day Israel. He traveled uh, through Asia. uh, That's modern day Turkey. Traveled through Greece. And he eventually made his way to Rome in chains. And so Paul was a very well-traveled man. 
And he was well-traveled as he sought to spread this gospel message to the ends of the earth. We, we can see throughout his travels that he had an intense passion, an intense desire to spread this gospel message. It's a great, great, uh, so something for us to, to grasp onto this morning, to, to, to have that intense passion to spread this gospel message. That Paul would be willing to, to leave family and friends and home to go share this message. Sometimes uh, I wonder in the 21st century in the Church of America, where's our passion? Where's the passion that Paul exhibited throughout his ministry? That, that he traveled uh, through, through a large chunk of land just to spread this message of Jesus. That Jesus is the Christ. He is the Savior of the world. He is God's Messiah, God's chosen one. And so it's believed that Paul wrote this letter of Romans while he was in the midst of his third missionary journey in the city of Corinth. Uh, Corinth was a major city in modern-day Greece, um, and, and there were many uh, major trade routes uh, that went between Asia, modern-day Turkey, and Rome, and, and they would travel through uh, this major city of Corinth. And so Paul is writing this letter in, in this major port city within the Roman um, Empire at the city of Corinth. And at this time, the Roman Empire, it was the most powerful, most powerful government, most powerful nation, most powerful empire. Its territory extended from Spain to past modern-day Israel. That, that is insane. That This was a huge empire. To this day, one of the strongest empires in all of the history of mankind. And when Paul was writing this letter, the Roman Empire was nearing the peak of its power. It almost expanded to, to its fullest uh, territory when Paul was writing this. Eventually, uh, the Roman Empire spread up into uh, current uh, United Kingdom as well and, and a bit further east as well. But it's nearing the peak of its power. And so the Roman Empire was an absolute powerhouse. You, you did not want to mess with the Roman Empire for, for they, they had power over any and, and everybody uh, that they wanted to. And so I've seen uh, Paul's letter to Rome uh, dated to either 56 or 57 I, uh, AD. I know a historian, so I'll let the historians uh, settle that one. But at this time, uh, the Roman Empire just introduced a, a new emperor, Emperor Nero. Nero uh, started his reign as emperor in 54 AD, just a couple of years before Paul wrote Romans. Uh, any guesses on how old Nero was when he began uh, his rule as uh, emperor? 21. That's a, that's a pretty good uh, guess. He was 16 years old. 16 years old when he began his reign as the emperor of the most powerful empire uh, of his time, one of the most powerful empires of all time. Um, could you imagine being uh, the most powerful person uh, of mankind at the age of 16? Uh, that, that's a dangerous uh, place to be in. But Nero came to rule as his mother Agrippina uh, married the previous emperor. Emperor Claudius. And oh yeah, by the way, uh, that was uh, her uncle. And so uh, Nero's mother uh, married uh, her uncle. This was sort of a power-hungry move so that her uncle would then uh, adopt Nero as his heir. And so after Emperor Claudius died, uh, Nero was the, the next heir in line, and he became emperor with the support of the military and, and the Senate. 
Before Nero became emperor, uh, Emperor Claudius, he, he ruled uh, the Roman Empire. And in 49 AD, five years before his death, he expelled all the Jews from the city of Rome. As he was tired uh, of the, the, this mess that the Jews were creating, uh, they, they weren't totally into this Pax Romana movement. They, they weren't totally 100% in uh, to the, this Roman idea. And so he kicked all the Jews out of the city of Rome. Uh, later on, they were allowed to return. But Nero is an interesting figure. He's a very well-known figure within Christian circles as the great fire of Rome took place under his rule as emperor. In 64 AD, more than 70% of the city of Rome, the capital city of this most powerful empire, more than 70% of the city was in ruins due to this massive fire. That, that is an intense fire that wreaked havoc. That's why we still talk about this fire nearly 2,000 years later. And the interesting thing about this fire is that we are not 100% sure how this fire started. Many ancient uh, historians blame Nero for starting this fire, and, and most assume it was Emperor Nero. Uh, but Nero himself, he blamed the Christians for starting the fire. Part of that reason is because uh, a chunk of the city of Rome where uh, a lot of the Christians uh, resided in, uh, they, it was untouched uh, by the fire. And, and Nero, he, he just needed to point his finger to a group of people as to who started this fire. And so he pointed his finger to this new movement uh, uh, that, that followed Christ Jesus. And so he pointed his finger at the Christians saying, these are the guys who started this great fire. And so Nero began uh, to heavily persecute the Christians. He would hold garden parties at night, and he would literally light Christians on fire, and their burning bodies would serve as a light in the midst of this just social party that, that Nero is trying to hold. Um, so we, we see really not our A-plus type of candidates who are rulers during the time in which Paul wrote this letter to the church at Rome. Far from it. Emperor Claudius kicking all of the Jews out of the city of Rome. Uh, Nero, shortly after the, this letter was written, blamed the fire on the Christians, and he would literally burn them alive, and, and they would serve as a light in, in the middle of night so that he could have his garden parties at night. These are, are pretty vile uh, people who, who were put in charge of the most powerful empire, the empire that Paul was in when he wrote this letter, and the empire that uh, Paul's uh, audience was living in as well. And so hopefully through this storytelling, uh, you feel a little more immersed into uh, the geopolitical landscape that Paul wrote this letter of Romans. It's important for us to consider uh, the political landscape as Paul talks about uh, the government in chapter 13. And so what, what, with that prior knowledge of kind of the ugly side of this government, we can wonder, what is Paul going to say about the government? And it might surprise some of you. So in Romans chapter 13, starting in verse 1, Paul writes, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. 
And so Paul's message to the church in the midst of living in an empire that, that had pretty harsh emperors, his message to them, be subject to them, submit to them, submit to the governing authorities. And a lot of people would probably be surprised in hearing this, that the Bible says to submit to the governing authorities. And Paul says we are to, to submit to the governing authorities as they are there in the first place because of God. For we all know that God, he is ruler of all. And therefore, if anyone is put in a position of authority, they therefore derive from God. God allows them to be there. God allows them to have authority over other human beings. And so Paul essentially says, if you resist the authorities, then guess what? You resist God. A superb example of this, one of my favorite examples of someone submitting to the governing authorities is David. Uh, David is my guy. Uh, David was being pursued by uh, the current king of Israel. You can read about this in 1 Samuel. Uh, so David was being pursued by King Saul. Uh, David, he did uh, King Saul many, many favors. God worked many wonders through David uh, to serve King Saul. And so David uh, was on the run as King Saul was trying to kill David. And, and Saul, he was the king. He had a lot of men at his disposal. He had a lot of power. And, and with, with all of his men, he went to go pursue this one man, David, because he was jealous of him, to go put him to death. And so David, he had to leave his family, his friends, his home, and he went on the run. He was a fugitive in his own land. Well, as King Saul was trying to kill David... David had two very, very unique opportunities. These two unique opportunities that David had, that he could have very easily killed King Saul. Very easily. One, one time, David was hiding further back in the cave. Paul, uh, or Saul was relieving himself, and, and David could have easily uh, killed King Saul right then and there. Uh, at a later date, uh, Saul and his men, they, they were camping. Uh, at night, they were sleeping, and David uh, went in his tent, and, and David could have killed uh, King Saul easily without any of Saul's men knowing. But both times, David would not lay his hand on King Saul. He refused to put his hands on the Lord's anointed, the Lord's chosen king of Israel, as God selected Saul to be king. But even in the midst of Saul's rampage, and Saul truly went, went off the chains, uh, so much so that, that God filled Saul with an evil spirit. And so Saul, he's, he's not thinking clearly. He, he is not doing good works for his country. This isn't a good king we're talking about. We're, we're talking about someone who, who completely, completely went off the chains, and David had a chance to kill him. But David would not lay his hands on the Lord's anointed even in the midst of Saul's rampage. And David's life would have been a million times easier if he had done that because he could have returned home to, to his friends, to his family. He was to be the next king of Israel, but he was patient, he endured, and he put his trust, he put his faith in God. And so that, that to me is a superb example of someone who, who, who was subject, who submitted himself uh, to the governing authorities, did not resist the authorities. He, he, he had a perfect opportunity to, to get rid of the authority, the governing authority in his life. You know, this would have been uh, very difficult to hear. Uh, Paul uh, writing this here, the first two verses, would have been very difficult for the zealots uh, to hear. 
During the time of Jesus and the time of the Apostle Paul, there were three main uh, groups of Jews. Uh, the first two uh, most people are familiar with, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. A little lesser known group of the Jews were the Zealots. Uh, the Zealots were convinced that there, were, that there was no king for the Jews except for God himself. And so the Zealots, the, these Jews, they would violently rebel against the government. And not only would they rebel against the government, but they would even seek harm to their own fellow Jews who paid tribute to the Roman government. And so here we, we have this large group of Jews who were violently uh, protesting the, the, the government of the time. And here Paul is saying, don't resist them. Subject yourselves to your governing authorities. For they're only there in the first place because God allows them to be there. If you resist them, you're resisting God. There was actually a, a disciple of Jesus who was a zealot himself, a Simon, uh, who's known as Simon the Zealot, not Simon Peter. Uh, the TV series, uh, The Chosen, um, I know a handful of you guys have watched uh, The Chosen. It covers uh, the life of Jesus and his earliest followers. And it's based off the Bible, but The Chosen adds uh, details that are not found in the scriptures. One of the details that aren't found in the scriptures that they add into uh, the story, one of the background storylines is that of the uh, disciple Simon uh, the zealot who was a zealot and we see him come out uh, of the zealot movement and we see his struggles that he has with, with the other zealots that he served with and, and how they are very unhappy with Simon for giving up on their movement and, and so we see his struggle that they're, they're starting to be a bit aggressive with Simon as he abandoned this movement and, and that was very ordinary for the zealots they, they would uh, physically protest against the government and, and they would protest against the Jews who submitted themselves to the governing authorities and now this theme of being subject to the governing authorities it's very consistent with the rest of the New Testament as well. This isn't just some radical idea that the Apostle Paul has himself. We, we see uh, th th this theme uh, of being subject, submitting to the governing authorities in Matthew 22, verse 21, 1 Timothy 2, uh, verses 1 and 2, Titus 3, 1, and 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 and 17. All, all four of these other instances reflect similar words to what Paul is writing here, that every person be subject to the governing authorities. Authorities. And we have to remember, Paul wrote these words after their last emperor kicked all the Jews out of Rome. And during the current rule of the emperor, who was about to, to blame this great uh, fire of Rome on the Christians, and, and he would literally burn these Christians alive so that he could have a party at night. These are, these are the type of governing authorities that Paul is dealing with. And he's not saying we need to retaliate and resist these harsh, evil governing authorities. No, be subject to the governing authorities. That, that, that really shocks me. That, that, that is not what one would probably expect from the Apostle Paul, someone who is so passionate, who, who is very zealous for God, who is very bold and courageous. I think a lot of people would, would expect Paul uh, to say, stand up, stand up and resist the governing authorities. But instead, it's a very contrary message to that. Be subject to the governing authorities. And so today, in the 21st uh, century, whether or not, this may be uh, difficult uh, for some to hear, whether or not you're a fan of Biden or whoever is in a governing position of authority, I think we're commanded to be subject to them. 
That message go, kind of goes counterculture, uh, from what I hear, to much of Western Christianity. We, we, are not, we are only not to be subject to the governing authorities when they uh, say or command, uh, what they say or command goes against God. Acts 5.29 talks about that as we are to obey God rather than men. But if the uh, governing authorities aren't telling you to sin, if they aren't telling you to rebel against God, do, do something that, that God would not be pleased with, then you ought to submit to these authorities and you ought to be a good citizen. Otherwise, you are resisting God. And I think this also, uh, Paul here, he uses a uh, kind of vague uh, termage, governing authorities. I think this talks about, I think this applies to any governing authority. I think this can apply with your job and the authority that, that maybe your boss has over you. I think this can apply to, to the family structure and, and the authority that God ha has handed to parents uh, and this family role. I think this applies uh, to the church as well um, and, and being subject to, to the governing authorities of the church. I think this applies to any aspect of someone who has governing authority. We are to be subject to them if what they say and what they uh, tell us to do does not go contrary to what God will want from us. And so Paul continues uh, along similar lines in verse 3. He says, For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. And so we are to be subject to the governing authorities, for they are God's servants. The, the, these people who have positions of authority, Paul says, not my words, Paul's words says that they are servants of God. In an ideal world, our love for one another would hold us all together. Unfortunately, the harsh reality that you and I live in, we do not live in a perfect ideal world. We live in a world that is torn apart by sin. The world that we live in, unfortunately, is not held together by love for one another. Much of what keeps this world from utter chaos, and some may say we, we are in chaos, what, what keeps this world from even more utter chaos, a lot of times are these different governing authorities that God has allowed to be in place. As governing authorities, when they're doing their, their job, they, they're punished wrongdoing, and thus preventing a lot of bad from happening. And the Roman government, for, for how awful they were at times, the Roman government during the time of Paul instilled relative peace in their land. This peace that, that this harsh empire instilled on the people, it proved as an extremely important instrument in spreading this gospel message. Where Paul and these other early followers, early disciples of Christ, when they would go leave their homes, their family and friends to, to a land unknown, they didn't have to fear as much uh, of wrongdoing being done to them because this Roman Empire was so huge into peace, Pax Romana. And this peace helped them. It assisted them in spreading this gospel message. 
And so all in all, surprisingly, what we see here in the first five verses of chapter 13, in the midst of a very harsh government that Paul was living in, Paul paints a rather positive picture of the government, which again goes counterculture uh, to, to much, uh, at least what I hear from Western Christianity uh, today. So that should be an eye-opening experience for us. And so Paul continues the last two verses uh, about governing authorities. Paul says, for because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Probably didn't expect to hear that this morning, but pay your taxes. <laughs> pay your taxes. That, that is your Christian duty to pay your taxes. You know, sometimes we, we, we may try to cheat the government out of the money. We think, oh, they, they don't deserve my money, my hard-earned working money. But Paul says, pay your taxes. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. That, that's part of being subject to the governing authorities is paying your taxes. I think cheating the government out of the money that you owe them, I think that's a sinful behavior. A sinful behavior that we probably don't shine much light on in Christian circles. But this is a message of Jesus as well. Jesus says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Does that ring a bell uh, to any of you all? If you're cheating the government out of the money that you owe them, stop it. Pay, pay your taxes. Uh, a very simple uh, uh, principle there. You, we, we all reap many benefits from the government. Just like the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul reaped the benefit of living in a uh, at least more peaceful society than it would have been had the Roman Empire not been in charge. And so Paul, he reaped the benefits of living in this society. And so if we're reaping the, the benefits, we also have to pay our dues as citizens as well. We are to pay to everyone what is owed to them. And so we don't talk about the government and church uh, a whole lot. And some of what Paul has to say about the government goes counterculture to large portions of Western Christianity. And because of that, I, I want to spend uh, the bulk of our time today on that discussion. The, the, the idea, the concept of subjecting yourselves to these governing authorities, whatever governing authorities you have in your life, if they do not go contrary to the word of God and what would please God, it's a simple message. Subject to these authorities. So I want to spend uh, the bulk of our time this morning talking about this discussion. We don't have the opportunity to talk about that too often. But starting in, in verse 8, Paul shifts gears here a bit. In verse 8 of chapter 13, Paul says, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves one another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Love one another. It's that simple. Love is the fulfillment of the law. 
If you love one another, if you love your neighbor as yourself, you will naturally follow God's commands. You will naturally not commit adultery. You'll naturally not commit murder or steal or covet if you truly love your neighbor. You know, Paul is really just echoing the, the sentiment, the words of Jesus in Matthew 22. Uh, we, we won't read it this morning, but Matthew 22, verses uh, 37 through 40, uh, this is uh, when the scribe asked Jesus what the most important commandment is. And, and Jesus says, the, the first is to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And, and the second is to love your neighbor as yourself. And as Jesus continues to talk about these two most important commandments, essentially loving God and loving people, Jesus says that all of the law and all of the prophets depend on these two commandments. They all hang on these two commandments of loving God and loving people. If you do these two things, you're on the right path. I can assure you of that. So my question for you all is what does your love for others look like? Is it, is it a genuine love that prevents you from committing adultery, murder, steal, or covet? Is it a genuine love that inspires you to, to serve the needs and desires of those around you? What does your love for others look like? For your love for God and your love for others, all of the law and all of the prophets hang on these two commands, loving God and loving people. And if you love God and you love people, I can assure you you have nothing to worry about. You have nothing to worry about. And so the, the concluding verses here in chapter 13, Paul writes, Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. And so when we woke up this morning, we were closer to God's salvation than we were yesterday. You know, a lot of people, uh, people, especially people who are big into prophecy and guessing when Jesus is going to come back, a lot of people throughout history have made predictions of the date in which Jesus was going to return. Thus far, all of them have been wrong. And so there's lots of speculation as far as when Jesus is going to come back. And it's a healthy conversation to have. It's healthy to, to focus on the, the, the return of Christ Jesus as he establishes his father's kingdom here on earth earth. But I, nobody knows the day nor hour. Jesus and his earthly ministry didn't even know the day nor hour. Maybe he knows now, I don't know, but, but at least at one point in time, Jesus didn't even know when he was going to come back to this earth. But I do know one thing for certain. I know that today we're closer to God's salvation than we were yesterday. And when we woke up this morning, we were a lot closer to God's salvation than when Paul wrote this letter. The return of Jesus is ever near. We're getting ever closer to the return of Jesus, to the restoration of the perfect creation where everything wrong with this world will be made right. 
And because of this, we have to wake up. We, we, we have to take off the works of darkness. You know, darkness in the time of Paul was symbolic of works of chaos, of evil, and mischief. Uh, very similar uh, to the symbolism of darkness today. And when we think about darkness in a practical sense, many wicked acts are done in the darkness that are not done in the light. As people uh, try to conceal their wickedness, where they may feel more comfortable to steal from their neighbor, to commit adultery, to, to murder someone at night, much more comfortable than, than they would be in the light of day in front of everybody else. And Paul says that we need to put these works off. You and I, we, we are children of the light. We are to make no provision, zero provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. You know, as Christians, unfortunately, you and I, we are still going to have sinful desires. Jesus himself had temptations that he had to battle and confront with. Thank goodness he never succumbed to, to those sinful uh, temptations. But as Christians, we're still going to have these sinful desires. But keep it at that. Keep it just at that, a sinful desire. Don't make any provisions to gratify those desires. When, when, when we make it possible to gratify those desires, those fleshly desires, that is when sin creeps in to our life. And so we need to make zero provision for the flesh. If you struggle with uh, pornography, then cut off that access. If you struggle with drunkenness, then cut off that access. If you struggle with gossip, then, then, then stop it. Whatever the case may be, do not make any provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. This is part of what it looks like to live a Christian life. In chapter 13, the, the, the short chapter, Paul outlines three different concepts of what it looks like to live a Christian life. Number one, we're to subject ourselves to the governing authorities in our lives. Whether that be the president, whether that be our governor, whether that be uh, at your job, your family, at your church, we're, we're to subject ourselves to the governing authorities. That's what it looks like to be a Christian. Number two, we've got to love one another. We've got to love God. We've got to love people. All of the law and all of the prophets hang on these two commands of loving God and loving people. So what does it look like to be a Christian? You got to love others. You got to love your neighbor as yourself. And then finally, you got to put off the works of darkness. Give zero provisions to gratify the desires of your flesh. Cut off all access to these temptations that you experience. And these temptations are going to be unique to you. And you need, you need to be self-aware to what tempts you, to, to, to what uh, instigates these desires, and what instigates you to actually act on these, these desires, you need to cut it off. This is part of how we live a Christian life, a life of faith, in the midst of the dark world that we live in. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Father, I thank you so much for the words of Paul here. I thank you for inspiring 
him to write these particular words so that we can have access to them thousands of years later. Father, I just pray that we apply these words to our lives today, tomorrow, and the rest of the days of our life. Father, I pray that you fill us with the spirit of humility so we can submit ourselves to our governing authorities. Father, I pray that you grant us a soft, compassionate heart in which we can love you and love our neighbors. And Father, I pray that you help us in our battle against sin and that you help us cut off our access to acting on our fleshly desires. So Father, we love you. We thank you. We thank you for the gift of eternal life that's made possible through your son. It's in his precious and holy and powerful and authoritative name that we pray. Amen.